Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the final Penguin Podcast episode of 2013. I'm Danny and I'm Victoria. Christmas is only five days away and we're well aware that there'll be a manic rush over the weekend to do last minute preparations for the most jolly of days. But we think the Christmas period is a great time to unwind and think back over all the things that have happened over the last year. So why not treat yourself to an hour or so on the sofa and allow us to share with you our 2013 reflections, a penguin roundup of the year, as it were. As it very much were. But where do we begin? 2013 has been yet another busy year for us penguins. The audiobooks team kicked off the year with a star-studded cast of narrators for the new Roald Dahl children's audiobooks. Yes, that's right, Penguin shared a set of headphones and a mic with the likes of Kate Winslet, Dan Stevens, Bill Bailey, Miranda Richardson, Derek Jacobi and Chris O'Dowd, to name but a few. Can you pick some of them and the others out in this mashup of Dahl audiobook clips? I was now a scruffy little boy, with grease and oil all over me. But that was because I spent all day in the workshop helping my father with the cars. He ran his fingers slowly back and forth along the length of it, stroking it lovingly. And the shiny paper wrapper made little sharp, crackly noises in the quiet room. The hammer, Hortensia said, is actually a ruddy great cannonball on the end of long bit wire, and the thrower risks it round and round, his or her head faster and faster, and then lets it go. You have to be terrifically strong. A dream, he said, as it goes whiffling through the night air, is making a tiny little buzzing, humming noise. But this little buzzy hum is so silvery soft, it is impossible for a human being to be hearing it. One child isn't going to be nearly enough for me today. I won't be full up until I've eaten at least three juicy little children. Please listen while I tell you now about a most fantastic cow. Miss Milky Daisy was her name, and when, aged seven months, she came to live with us, she did her best to look the same as all the rest. What a lot of hairy-faced men there are around nowadays. When a man grows hair all over his face, it is impossible to tell what he really looks like. Perhaps that's why he does it. He'd rather you didn't know. No animal is half so vile as Crockywock, the crocodile. On Saturdays he likes to crunch six juicy children for his lunch. How many voices did you pick out? If you want to hear more, these Roald Dahl audiobooks are available to buy on CD. Back in April, you all remember that one of Britain's former Prime Ministers passed away. This news was incredibly significant for Penguin, as this meant that a book, which was written 15 years ago, finally came out of the Penguin Vault to be published. Here's a reading from Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher. The secular celebrations were less awkward. On 12th of October, 1,250 representatives of the task force marched to Guildhall with a fly-past of helicopters and aircraft. Then there was lunch inside. The top brass sat with the Prime Minister and the Lord Mayor at the high table, the officers and other ranks at the lower tables. When Mrs Thatcher rose to speak, suddenly, before she could say anything, there was a standing ovation from the floor, started by the boys. The other politicians couldn't believe what was happening. When Mrs Thatcher had quietened everyone down, she said, It is I who should be down there, thanking you. The night before, at number 10, Mrs Thatcher gave dinner for the Lord Mayor and about 120 of those most involved in the Falklands victory. In her speech after dinner, she quoted the Duke of Wellington, There is no such thing as a little war for a great nation. She spoke of the spirit of the Falklands and went on, Or is it the spirit of Britain which throughout history has never failed us in difficult days? She spoke like Queen Elizabeth I, remembered David Goodall. She looked like Queen Elizabeth I. So many people had been invited to the dinner that there was no room for spouses at table. Instead, they were invited for post-dinner drinks in the drawing rooms. Because all the main players in the Falklands crisis had been men, Mrs Thatcher was the only woman at dinner. After the toasts which followed her speech and the reply from Lord Lewin, the Prime Minister rose in her seat again and said, Gentlemen, shall we join the ladies? It may well have been the happiest moment of her life. 
That was a reading from Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher, which will be re-released next year as a paperback. Also in April, the podcast team received some exceptionally exciting news when the Penguin podcast was nominated for a Webby Award, which in the digital world is the equivalent to the Oscars. Our fellow nominees included The New Yorker, Stuff That Works, CNN and Vox Tablet, so we were pretty chuffed and honoured to face such incredible competition. <coughs> Humble brag. We celebrated at the time with a Best of the Penguin podcast montage. Okay, so Poo Poo Hot Pot is a scholarly, uh, academically rigorous book. Um, it's a um, hundred of the world's best restaurant names. My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire. Bonjour, Sarah. <laughs> Hello. Good morning, Little Red Riding Hood, said the wolf. Thank you, wolf, and good morning to you. Jin. Gin, beautiful gin. That was a really terrible question as well, sorry. It wasn't even really a question, it was just like... Yes, I thought this year I would get younger and grow taller because I figured it would be easier. Sat down, breathed a huge sigh of relief and then... Hello! He'd followed me onto the bus. Thank you, that was amazing. A great mob of grown-ups was moving towards him. Even from this distance, he could smell them. After our success on the Level 3 radio show, I had become known to the powers that be. Powers that were? Powers that bead. Powerful bees. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we buried this Samyad for hundreds of years and then re-dig him up and modern children can actually discover him and see if he'll still grant wishes for them. <laughs> the idea that it might shine a light at him and help him become a new man is, is so fanciful. I wish, but I don't think it's going to happen. I couldn't obviously come up and sort of hug a, a wild dolphin. That would be rather irresponsible, <laughs> even if it wanted me to. our favourite bits from the Penguin podcast and I expect we can add many more to that now. What have been your favourite interviews, readings or extracts on the podcast in 2013? We'd love to know so why not send us an email to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or tweet us at Penguin Podcast. July 1st was another big date in the Penguin calendar where we officially joined forces with Random House, thus forming a new company, Penguin Random House. We're thrilled to have such wonderful new colleagues and shelves and shelves of new fantastic books. And here's a great contribution from our new family members and Al Murray, who has some advice on what to watch and give as presents this Christmas. There's still time. Uh, hello, it's me, Al Murray, with my top five Christmas presents. Now, these are the top five Christmas presents that either I've received or would like to give or ought to give uh, to stay out of trouble this Christmas. First of all, I think the greatest Christmas present I ever received was an Action Man helicopter that I got when I was about five that snapped together. And, and I remember opening the box, um, ludicrously overexcited, um, clicking it all together according to the instructions, sticking on the decals and then plonking Action Man in it. And he promptly broke the steering rod, when he, which, is, which is your perfect Christmas Day um, sequence of events. Um, it, it had a, I don't think it had a battery powered engine, but you had a plunger that you push and the rotors would go round. Absolutely brilliant presence. And I think that was the that was the flashiest bit of action man gear I got. I never got the tank, I never got the Jeep. It was the helicopter. And then there was the helicopter backpack that he had as well that you'd push you'd push a little thing and the and the rotors would spin. Um so yeah, number one, the action man helicopter. Number two, the um airfix dogfight set. The airfix dogfight set um had a Spitfire, um, a hurricane and a Messerschmitt 110 in it, which is the twin-engine German heavy fighter that um, was were really, really slow. And the, the good thing about the good thing about this dogfight set with the, Mesh, with the Spitfire, the Hurricane, and the Messerschmitt was because the Messerschmitt 110 was so slow and useless, you knew <laughs> that your Spitfire and your Hurricane would be able to shoot the thing down. So as a Christmas present, again, another one I got, I definitely got that probably at least once. Um, that's an absolute gold cert, 100 a uh, gold-plated 24-carat winner. 
and uh, they they still do it. And if you've got a little lad or little lady who's interested in all that stuff, uh, it's a it's a it won't go wrong. Um, uh, my number three Christmas present of all time, and this is the the reason I'm, this is on my f- top five is this is the Christmas present I've been given the most, which is bloody book tokens. Oh God, my family basically um, gra- about twenty probably 25 years ago, ground to a halt with what to buy me, what to get me imaginatively. And so I have had book tokens ever since. And the, I mean, the, the brilliant thing about the book token is obviously you can buy what you want, but it also, I mean, it's on my list because I get a lot of them. Um, not because I have any fondness for the thing, <laughs> but of course it, it never lets you down. So if, if you're looking, if you're looking for the um, ultimate Christmas present, the book token can't go wrong. Number four is a drum kit. I got given a drum kit um, I think for my 12th birth, 12th, no, 12th Christmas present it was. Um, it was from Foots in Golden Square in central London. They, they've moved now, um, which at the time was like a was like an Aladdin's cave of drums. The drum kits would all be stacked up all the way to the ceiling and it had a little, it had a man in a brown coat and it had a hatch. It was one of those shots. And my parents got me a premier drum kit with a blue floor tom, uh, two orange tom-toms and an orange bass drum. And it was the, the, the greatest present I have ever been given. It was amazing. And uh, the noise, the racket. Um, weirdly, my mum says she misses the noise. She missed the noise when I moved out. And my mum's clearly got a screw loose there. And finally, num- top present number five, the Lego Death Star. Uh, my nephew wants this, so um, I'm going to have to buy it. <laughs> and those are my top five Christmas presents. I hope, I hope that's uh, helped anyone short of ideas. Right, with my top films, top five films for Christmas. Um, I'm not necessarily a connoisseur of Christmassy films. In fact, very often, if a movie involves someone pretending to be Santa, um, I run a mile. But here we go. Five films that I would recommend for any Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life. Um, Everyone suggests this one. I am a robot. I am a drone. I have no will of my own. I am forced to like this movie because it's brilliant, like everybody else. Uh, You know, it's it's Jimmy Stewart, isn't it? And uh, he he decides to take, you know, he's got to think about his life and considers committing suicide. Then an angel, of course, comes to tell him or comes to show him um, uh, how life would be um, if if it wasn't for him. In It's sort of like a Christmas carol in that way. It's kind of like the ghost of Christmas future. You've all, I don't know why I'm going on about this. You've all seen it. It's heartwarming. Basically, heartwarming. Uh, my second Christmas movie is The Sound of Music. I don't even like this film, but if it's not on, it's not Christmas. That's what it boils down to. Until Julie Andrews, Andrews runs to the top of a mountain and hollows her head, hollows her head off, Christmas hasn't started, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Lederhosen, evil Nazis, uh, nuns. What else could you want? A girl who's 16 going on 17. No, they're, they're different times. Um, then uh, an actual Christmas-based movie is Elf. Uh, Will Ferrell. Very, 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 very funny movie about Christmas. Um, uh, my, I think my favourite bit is where he tries to cross the road in New York is run over by a cab because, because he's trying to cross the road in New York without looking where he's going in his elf suit. Um, a brilliant, a brilliant film and, uh, actually funny as well as schmaltzy, as well as heartwarming and, uh, with a tinge of satire possibly in, in it. Um, I, I can't help but recommend that. Jurassic Park is my next film. Again, a little like Julie Andrews. It's about a dinosaur stalking open fields. Uh, another one of those films, if that, if that hasn't been on, the Christmas hasn't happened. Certainly not in my house. It's one I revisit with the kids. Will somebody go and find my grandchildren, says Dickie Attenborough, um, in the worst Scottish ac- accent ever committed to celluloid. Um, but yeah, Jurassic Park, it's a, you can't go wrong with that one. Uh, I do a really good impression of a velociraptor that won't come over in audio format. Uh, and then Toy Story. If you want to sit the family down and warm everyone's cockles and make us all realise how lucky we are, then pro- any actually any of the Toy Story films, probably one or three, but the first one is absolutely brilliant. It's your family movie. It's your ideal Christmas viewing. There you go. Those are my top five movies for Christmas. Here are my top five war films in no particular order. Uh, I'm not actually going to do them in a, in, a, in a one to five order because that would be unfair and you're going to disagree. Um, well, first of all, Zulu. Uh, Zulu is is one of the one of the truly great war films. Uh, a slightly liberal uh, and inaccurate telling of the amazing stand uh, at Rourke's Drift that had the element of being a last stand by the British Army, and then turned out not to be because, the, as we know, and this isn't a spoiler, the Zulus at the end they go, "Well, gosh, you fought so well, and we've we've had such a terrible time that actually, you know what? We quit. 
and the Zulu, the Zulu impi at the end, they all bang on the shields and they leave. And uh, it's got Michael Caine with his strangulated posh vowels. Um, he doesn't say Zulus, thousands of them. He doesn't say that, but he might as well have done. Uh, a, a really, really, really top war film. Eleven Victoria Crosses. Um, uh, many of the uh, heroes of the true events slandered by Cy Enfield and his production Zulu, but never mind. Uh, uh, Corporal Hook, for instance, wasn't a drunk. Uh, things like that. But it's a brilliant film, and I think I'm fairly confident every man um, my age has seen it uh, probably more than once. Then we have The Great Escape, the story of the Tom, Dick and Harry tunnels, uh, British prisoners of war trying to escape, and an American. What's he doing there? Well, uh, he's Steve McQueen, so he can be in the film if he wants, probably how they got the finance. Um, we all know the, 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 the famous last scene where Steve McQueen, of course, tries to jump over the barbed wire. Um, to get into Switzerland and fails on his motorbike uh, and then returns to the cooler, the cooler king. What actually happened was uh, a load of British prisoners of war tried to escape and then were rounded up murdered by the Nazis. So maybe it needed that um, happy ending or not quite happy ending or that heroic attempt by Steve McQueen being cooler than anyone else ever. Um, uh, here's an interesting factoid. I learned while recording my audiobook is that um, Keith Moon attempted to recreate the end of the Great Escape by uh, vaulting into Steve McQueen's uh, Swiss house. That's right, isn't it? American place. Tried to uh, jump on a motorbike into his American place uh, to recreate The Great Escape with the music blaring from speakers out in, outdoors. Um, I think, again, that's another one of those films everyone knows, and it's really brilliant. Then we come to Where Eagles Dare, uh, an action film. It's not a war movie, really, but it's Clint Eastwood, uh, Richard Burton... Uh, who, who talks German to people like this. He goes, well, he doesn't talk German. What you have in this film is the convention that the Germans all speak German, in a German accent, rather. So the Germans all speak to each other like that in a super sinister Nazis. And the British are all, let's, let's have a go, old chap. They're all like that. But the, the British then put on German uniforms, which is a war crime, by the way, put on German uniforms. Uh, well, it's not a war crime, but you can, it can lead to you being executed summarily as a spy, they put on uh, German uniforms and then speak to Germans, but in English, but without the heavily, heavily, heavy accent, but are understood as speaking German. It's quite confusing. Uh, and there's a bit where they sit in a bar and they're all talking to each other, in a German bar, and they're all talking to each other in English, uh, Burton and, his, and, and Clint and the gang. And yet, but they're meant to be, obviously meant to be speaking in German because otherwise they draw attention. Anyway, it doesn't matter. There's a great fight on top of a cable car. We've all seen it. It's brilliant. Uh, then uh, my fourth top five war film is Stalingrad, a German movie about the battle at Stalingrad, the epic confrontation between uh, the, the Germans and the Soviet Union around the uh, city named after um, Stalin himself, of course, the, the, the Russian dictator. This is a brutal film, pulls no punches. Um, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, the three films that have preceded this choice are pieces of entertainment, probably. This is a really grim and gritty thing about... Uh, what war entails and, and uh, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't put it on Unboxing Day afternoon if I were you. And then A Bridge Too Far, my favourite war film, but also one that um, um, uh, I affectionately uh, have think has lots of problems. It's the story of the battle at Arnhem and the, or the battles around Arnhem, uh, uh, the British attempt to leapfrog their way into Germany, up the three branches of the Rhine through Holland. And uh, it's star-studded, Laurence Olivier playing uh, a, playing a Dutch medic. You've got uh, Anthony Hopkins as John Frost. Uh, Sean Connery as Roy Urquhart. Robert Redford as a dashing American major. Um, uh, Dirk Bogart as Roy Browning. I mean, it's, it, couldn't be, it couldn't be any more star-studded, to be honest. And it's a fantastic, epically produced film with amazing scenes in it, parachuting and great bravery. And, uh, but again, like all these films, one you'll have seen many, many times probably and probably in bits and pieces, but worth another look. Uh, and those are my top five war films. I hope you like them. That was Al Murray's top Christmas film and gift tips and his new book, Watching War Films with My Dad, is available now. Upon reflection, a great deal of our authors are very philosophical and conscious of the changes in our society. And this year, Stephen Emmett stood out with his book. Here he is presenting 10 billion to you in a nutshell. 10 billion is about us. It's about how we the driver of every global problem that we face and about how as we continue to grow every one of these problems is continuing to accelerate whether it's climate change loss of ecosystems resource depletion 
resource overuse, consumption, stress on water, agriculture, food, land. And it's about our failure, collective failure, as, our failure as us as individuals, failure of businesses, the failure of governments to both recognise and tackle the full extent of the problem that we will face over this century. I wanted to write 10 billion because I think there is an urgent need to communicate more effectively than is currently being communicated the scale and the nature of the challenges that we're going to face this century, globally. Because I don't think that's happening at the moment. I wanted to do that because I, I'm hoping that the book serves as a catalyst for changing the way people think about these problems and what we need to do to solve them, if we can solve them. I'm not optimistic about the future, it would be fair to say. Scientists often sit on the fence about this kind of question, but I think it's time for scientists to get off the fence. So personally speaking, I think we're f***ed. That was Stephen Emmett presenting his alarming and eye-opening research. If you'd like to find out more, his book 10 Billion is available to buy now. October is the busiest month in publishing when all the leading frontless books of the year are released in time for the Christmas boom. This year we had a comedy partnership who had more in common than their witty comebacks and jokes. Jack Whitehall and his father Michael have written an autobiography duet entitled Him and Me about life in the Whitehall household. Feast your ears on this clip from their performance at Cadogan Hall. Thank you very much, thank you very much. We're in the Cadogan Hall, Chelsea. It's such an amazing space, yeah. this, don't you think? It's incredible. I mean, you've never done anything like this. Before. Well, I wanted to have it in Tiger Tiger, but you vetoed it now. <laughs> We're here, so let's make the most yeah, of it. Seriously, you've never, I mean, that place you go to, that um, place at the, in Soho, with all that beer and... All that beer? Well, sort of uh, place where you go and tell jokes in. The comedy store? Yes, that. I mean, it's a look lovely at, venue. Look at this. This is proper. Yeah, they're different types of venues. No, the comedy store is are. a very nice place, and I will not hear a bad word said against it. Right, it does not fine. smell of beer. And what about that one that had stuff on the floor, on the sofas? What? What is that thing? That you're Why are you looking at Yes, it? DNA. Oh, right? my God. I think you're referring to Havana Club in Fulham, yes. which is a very nice... Yes, which is a very nice nightclub. A couple of party animals down there know what I'm talking about. Sure, the floors are a little bit sticky, but that is nothing to do with the I'm venue. It's I'm a sorry place. about this, Nick. We're here to sell books, gentlemen. Yes. Now then, whose smart idea was this? You kicked this off, Jack. Um, well, I uh, was asked to write a book uh, by Penguin. Uh, our wonderful publishers, and they asked me, and I thought... Who is I and me? What are you talking about? <laughs> we were asked, and I was asked, because I'm a published author. I mean, can I... Come on, give us a few names of books you've written. Come on. I have never written a book. Yes, no. you did write one book once, which yes. you never shot. Well, I obviously would have only written it once. You yes. can only write a book once. <laughs> It was called Shark Infested Waters, as you know, Nick, because I remember you very kindly... I, no, no, I was given one of the few uh, copies from your garage that wasn't badly damaged by damp, but it's a good Nick, read. That is so unfair, Nick. I mean, it's a good I'm, read, I like, but at the not, end of it all, it's a good read. We're not here to talk about Shark well, Waters. Like, These people do not want to buy your book, Shark well, Waters. They, they, they look like it. people that would be more likely to buy a book than the people at the comedy store. OK, whatever. Um, you, they can't but, even buy your book because it's been pulped. So no, it has it. not been pulped. You can get it on Amazon. <laughs> I mean... I, Sorry, I, you're going to now explain I'm sure to some of you will be interested in this. So let me just explain to you what you do. You look it up on, on the web thing, Cam. The so, webcam. Whatever, whatever it is. And, yeah. and then you print in Amazon. And you then, print in Amazon. Well, I did that. The first time I did it, it didn't work properly because I got these photographs of these very Amazonian-looking women. Oh! That, that was... But anyway, when I got onto the right website... I, what are these hand gestures? What are you doing you now do with the computer? And what's this? What computer are you using where this is one of the commands? So then you, so then you get... And the book's called Shark Infested Waters by Michael Whitehall. And you can get it in hardback or paperback. And then you just 
thing, and, and then you just take it out of the computer. So you have place. never used Amazon in your life. You've never booked a, bought a book on Amazon before ever. You've never used the computer. Oh, well, that's not true. I mean, I, 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 well, I mean, I haven't actually literally used it myself, but I've got people to do that. <laughs> People to do it. Got people. people. Do, what do you mean, do, people? Staff. We don't have staff. Oh, your mother. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Him, you know. any attempt that he makes to use any kind of like any anything to do with technology and you is just a no-go zone. Right. I'm going to tell this lovely audience what, what happened to me recently. It was one of the most troubling experiences of my life. And it was because all of a sudden, from nowhere, he started using emoticons in his text messages. <laughs> the emoticons are like um, the little, uh, you know, f smiley faces that like 14-year-old girls use in their text messages. That makes it sound like I text 14-year-old girls. I don't. <laughs> but he, he just threw them in, like flagrantly with disregard, not knowing what any of the emoticons meant. So it gave a completely different context to the text message that he was sending. I got a message from him a couple of weeks ago, should have been a perfectly innocent thing to receive. It turned out to be the most harrowing thing I've ever read in my entire life. Right? It went like this. Dear Jack, are you coming over for Sunday lunch? Your sister's going to be there. Winky face. <laughs> you did! I did not. I you sent it to Barney. <laughs> That doesn't make it any better if you send it to my brother. Also, where's that voice come from? That's how you talk. Ridiculous. You do. <laughs> I have a perfectly normal voice. It's a bit warm and friendly. Turning you... to the book. Oh, sorry, yes, the book. Yes, sorry. Turning to the sorry, book, Nick. which I've read several times, and one of the key things that seems to strike me that there's a theme that runs through it, streaks through it and it's nakedness, the theme of nakedness. There's even uh, a drawing by you, Jack, of, of your father and Trevor MacDonald in bed together. Oh, yes, I mean, I... And the yeah. only person who doesn't seem to take her clothes off is your beloved mother, Hillary. There we are, look. Now then, yes, uh, let's we, hear... We, did, we actually did a book signing in Barnes, uh, yes. very near to where... Um, so Trevor McDonald lives, and Lady McDonald came to the book signing. She did. So I had to apologise for drawing this picture, because this didn't actually happen, just to clarify. I mean, that would be amazing if that was a story in the book about Daddy and Trevor having a passionate night together. I never understood but, uh, also why Trevor was in pyjamas and I was in the nude. <laughs> well, because in my mind, he's wearing the top and you're wearing the bottoms. <laughs> I think Trevor looks... <laughs> I think Trevor looks poised. I think he looks poised. Anyway, let's hear the extract, the first extract, where, Jack, you decide you owe it to your friend Freddie to remove your trousers at school. Oh, yes, this is... Come, this is, yeah. the oh, first come reading. Don't get up too quickly. Sometimes he gets up and he gets in Do you want a seat or will you be all right standing? No, I'm is it we can to start with my chapter? No, we start with my chapter. All right, what's we'll build out to mine? Finish with mine and then just sound yeah. with yours in the middle, okay. so right. we can bury it. Um, okay, <laughs> so this uh, is a story about uh, um, my school days. Um, and I think quite a lot of people make um, assumptions about you know, my school days and they think, oh yeah, Jack, you're really posh. Uh, which, you know, obviously I'm not, having a book launch in Sloane Square. Uh, <laughs> nothing posh about that at all. But the point is, you know, just because I went to a posh public school doesn't mean that I didn't have the sh same experiences as, you know, as, as everyone might have. You know, like, we had a really bad um, school bully at my school. We had a the, the guy that bullied me at school. He was horrible, like, a vicious piece of work um, called Atticus Montague Hoy. And he... <laughs> I don't know why they're laughing. He was really rough. <laughs> He'd only been skiing, like, twice. Um, That was Jack and Michael Whitehall, whose book Him and Me is out now. October is also a time when the most prestigious literary award takes place, the Man Booker Prize. And this year, Colm Tobin represented Penguin with his book The Testament of Mary, about the mother of Jesus. We caught up with him at the time to congratulate him on being shortlisted and ask him what was the inspiration behind his book. 
There's a painting in Venice, the Assumption in the Frari by Titian. And it's, it's Mary in red robes with angels all around her, going up into the sky with um, the sky above her and above the sky heaven and God waiting in heaven for her. And it's a sort of beautiful idea. Um, up the road, there was a, there's a thing called San Rocco. I remember one Sunday afternoon wandering into it. And first there are big rooms and you wander around. Then there's another inner chamber. And in the inner chamber, there's a long, long painting by Tintoretto of the crucifixion. And um, it seemed to me almost a reply to the Titian, saying, you know, this is what life looks like. It's chaotic. It's, it's not ordered and it's not an apotheosis of anything. There's a cross in the middle. It's untidy. People all around are doing other things with horses, with food, with lighting fires. And this is merely this is what it might have looked like on the day. It must have been breathtaking um, when it was painted um, in the 16th century because it really suggests this crucifixion did not look like it was going to change Western civilization on the day it took place. Yeah. And um, th- there's very little of the divine in it. I couldn't take my eyes off it. And again, I, you know, I did that sort of sitting there for ages, just sitting there, sitting there. And the distance between the two is, I suppose, the distance sometimes between life in all its untidiness and fiction in the way of putting structure on life. And in, in a way, the Gospels attempted to put structure on a story. What I was trying to do in the novel was unravel that story, take the structure out of it and give it to a voice and see what that would look like if, if you did that so that she actually isn't ostensibly in, in isn't putting shape on the story. She's trying to take shape from the story to actually, because for her, it remains um, traumatic experience, which, which, which has not in any way been dealt with. So it comes out raw. And that was what I was trying to do, make it come out raw. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it goes back to the whole idea, um, which has been talked about by critics, of, of how subversive this novel is. And um, there's a particular depiction of Mary which actually reduced me to tears was she's full of regret and when she described standing by and letting her son die and then fleeing from the scene um, and at the end of the novel I'm not spoiling this for anyone Mary says that even if her son redeemed the world it was not worth it now to me that seemed a deeply shocking statement to put in this book and I wondered whether you thought it would have provoked more controversy than it did particularly in Ireland well, the, um, the Spanish for that would be um, no valía la pena, as it wasn't worth the pain or the suffering. Right, um, right. If you wanted to say it was not worth it, it's, 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 in English it's, it's a bit harder, but in, in Spanish it's lovely. Yes. But, I mean, I build up to it where she doesn't think it. It's not there at the beginning. It's only when she's really pushed by these men to say, and they, they're using the, it sounds already like a cliche, oh, he died to redeem the world, mm. his father sent him to, they're already talking in platitudes, and she is more and more frightened by them because they seem to be so placid in relation to what happened. And she actually, it forces her, and it doesn't come easily to her to say, you know, if you want to witness, I was one, and I can tell you. And and she's, they they know something is coming that is almost unsayable, but these words are forced out of her. They they she's not thinking them. They they come to her almost dramatically, almost as though, in one second, she has one further thing to say that's pushed out of her. And that is that it was not worth it. And it's bringing it back to that individual humanity as opposed to a sort of mass of purpose. And I should say that um, the actresses who've worked with this have found those lines very useful, you know, and said them in a way that that the audience is stunned by. Well, that, in fact, Uh, I saw it in Dublin and that was, it it particularly kind of came out in the performance. Yeah, and Fiona Shaw does does the same, where where she really really works with those lines. Which actually brings me very neatly onto my... um, uh, last question, which is about how writing the play, I wondered how writing the play made you think differently about the story or, or the, the figure of Mary. Well, well I suppose um, it, it arose from a class, our course I gave in what they call the New School in New York in, in the autumn of 2000. And the course I gave there was called Relentlessness. 
and I was trying to find in literature um, books and plays and poems which really didn't have didn't let up were dark beyond dark and therefore we did of course Medea, Electra and Tigone and of course I paid a huge amount of attention to different translations and we really worked with those plays and then trying to find modern versions of them such as say Sylvia Plath or Louise Glick you know who yeah, had great. sort of worked yeah. with those voices so it was always on my mind that there was something you could still do with that idea of Electra outside her mother's house raving yes. with anger, grief, pain and threats, you know, all those years later. And so the idea of working with voice interested me that, that even if it were to be read in silence by a reader in a book, that there would be a sense of voice, but that I was working with a sense of a voice that could come to you from the page because I was aware that it, that it could also be a real voice. And that helped, I think, enormously. The fact, yes, th this has a theatrical element. So that when I went back to write it as a novel, I, 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 I had all that sense of the urgency of it, of there not being much time, of, you know, that even with a s sentence change, it could be a light change. You know, that you could see that in a book. So it was a very useful experience. I mean, so I, I would recommend it to every novelist. And do you read your, before that, did you read your work aloud? Never, no. ever, ever. I mean, it would be the <laughs> absolute nightmare. The idea of being on your own in a room, reading out your work would for me be, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I would call it, there's a, word, there's a word I would use for it. Let's call it master reading. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, I would like to thank Colin Dubin very much for sharing his thoughts on the Testament of Mary. Thank you very much, Mary. That was Colin Dubin talking about his man book, a shortlisted book, The Testament of Mary. Next up, we have Con Igledon, a popular author who is a fairly new member of the Penguin family. This year, we published his first book in a new series about the War of the Roses. Here's what he said when he came in to talk about his new book, Stormbird. My name's Roy McMillan and I'm the audiobook producer here at Penguin and every now and again I get given the tremendous honour of being able to read the occasional book and one of them was Wars of the Roses Stormbird by Con Igledon and I'm delighted to say that he's here with me now. I'm the audiobook producer at Penguin. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, let me think. I mean, I was born in 1971. My father was a bomber command pilot. Um, my mother was Irish and came across to be a teacher in England. Uh, they found each other, fell in love, married, had me. Um, I became an English teacher after an English degree, sort of fell into it because both of my parents were teachers and teachers do breed teachers. But um, in fact, they both warned me against the profession. But I, I enjoyed it very much. I was a teacher for seven years, I think, all in all. It was not quite man and boy, but all the way through my life, I was writing stories at the same time. From the age of about 13, I was sending a book to publishers about once a year. Um, with no success at all. In fact, even sending it to publishers was a mistake, as I now realise. But I used to put hairs from my head in between the pages and very, you know, just to see if anyone was reading them. And very often the hair would be there when I, I got the manuscript back and I, I thought, therefore, no one had read it. But years later, I mentioned that to an, an editor, actually, at Penguin, and he said, ah, oh, yes, lots of people try that. We always make sure the hair goes back in the same place. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a hard old world, world and it was, the, the books were turned down with enormous enthusiasm uh, for many years. And then uh, finally I got to the story of Julius Caesar and I enjoyed it and I, I wrote it over two years and I said to my wife, and, you know, it's a little fairy tale, this, but I think this is the best I can do and if this doesn't go, then I'm done, I'm, I'm finished. Um, I can't do better than this. So I sent it in and uh, for the first time in about 15, 17 years, I got a letter back instead of a manuscript and it was accepted by HarperCollins. And um, actually it was accepted by my agent first of all and then she placed it with uh, HarperCollins and, uh, and I was off. Then I had my big size 12 foot in the door and they haven't been able to stop me since. Can I ask what it is that attracts you then to, I hope you don't mind the phrase, historical mm. fiction? Or, Not at all. Um, what is it about that that makes it appealing for you as a writer? Well, I mean, my mother was a history teacher and she always told me history uh, as a series of great stories. Um, it was always, uh, you know, she, uh, she, being Irish, of course, she loved the stories of Napoleon and found them very romantic. Um, but but th that's how history was presented to me, as a, a, a panoply, a tapestry of 
wonderful characters in extraordinary situations, forced to choose between life and death and sacrifice and betrayal. And, you know, if you're taught history like that, then it's an absolute joy. I, I have spoken to people since then who said they found history very dull in school, and I've got always ready to strangle the, the teacher involved, because if you can make history dull, you are, you know, you really should, perhaps shouldn't be there. Um, it's a wonderful subject with wonderful stories, and my, the joy of my life is that I'm able to, to find those great stories, to seek them out and find those great characters and write uh, their stories, write the detail. You are, um, of course, faced with the fact that you're dealing with facts, well, or yes. at least, or at oh, least yes. ele- elements of fact, because well, quite a lot can't be absolutely certain, but, and then trying to turn it into a, a narrative. So hmm. tell us the basis for, for this tale, and we'll move on to how you turn it into a story in a minute. But what... what well, I mean, Wars of the Roses, uh, you know, quite a lot is known, uh, unlike Julius Caesar and uh, certainly not for Genghis Khan, uh, where there was only one written source. But for Wars of the Roses, you you have things like the Paston letters, uh, which, you know, are letters written between the Paston family all the way through the Wars of the Roses. And you have sometimes extraordinary details. Sometimes they're the only source. Sometimes they can be compared to other sources. But you you learn as much as you possibly can about the period, because that's desperately important. Um, I mean, I can describe a Roman kitchen without too much trouble, but I... you know, I found that a medieval kitchen was unknown to me, so I had to go and research that because um, otherwise you, you make some dreadful mistake and you, you don't realise that every single person used this kind of spoon and everyone should know that. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that worries me. But then when it comes to sort of elements of fiction, you have minor characters who have to sort of move the, the plot along sometimes and may well have existed, but they, their names didn't come through in history. Um, servants and uh, the, the King Spymaster, for example, I, I invented as a character, but I think somebody very much like him must have existed. Um, so you, you, you then keep as true to the, po- the history as you possibly can, occasionally playing around with time, because sometimes two or three years go by and nothing happens. And it's, it's really very hard to explain why nothing happens um, in, in a book. You can't have all of your major characters just lounging around doing nothing, although they must have actually done that, or just rested for a summer or a winter, and nothing happens at all. So I tend to cut those out, and then the problem is that by the end of doing that for 20 or 30 years, all the characters are too young because I've cut out you know, half of their youth. So I have to play around with uh, details a few times, and I use part one and part two and things like that to, to move the plot on. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I have the, the joy of choosing from this great uh, tapestry of stories that go back. And the old joke is, you know, that the French got cooking and the Italians got style, but the British got history. And there, there is an element of truth in that. It's, uh, it's a, a great thing to be able to play with. So the British have got history. If you were having to explain what this history was, what this story was, hmm. very briefly, how would you do it? What is this? Well, this is the run-up to the Wars of the Roses, and the, War of the Wars of the Roses is the run-up to the Tudors. This is how the Tudors came about, if you like, how they took over the throne of England. This is the story after Henry V, uh, the victor of the Battle of Agincourt, who had a son, a young son, Henry VI, who was described as biddable and simple and was completely unable to withstand the powerful lords of his father's kingdom as he grew up. And it's, it's the story of his marriage and his rise to manhood and his completing capability and destruction at their hands uh, to the point where he collapses into a near catatonic state for 18 months of stupor and dreaming uh, while other men like Richard Duke of York take over as protector and defender of the realm. It's the struggle between the houses of you know, Lancaster and York, but it's, it's mainly the weakness of King Henry. But also the, the, there's this notion of a... A, a significant change in uh, the sort of British politics at the time, or English politics rather, in that there had there, there had been this succession, they had they had vast lands in France, and there was just this shift of powers. The French became more powerful, the English king was weaker, the power struggles in there creating the the vacuums into which the powerful are keen to press themselves. Yes, I mean, it, it, in some ways, it was Henry's fault that they lost France. It's it's almost difficult to imagine a situation from uh, the perspective of a 21st century um, writer, when you're looking back at, first of all, the awe and reverence that the uh, the king was held in, Um, I mean, anointed by God, uh, uh, an impossibly distant figure, even from his own lords, and also the fact that France used to be as English as eggs, um, and all of Normandy, including Paris, and right down to, you know, about two-thirds of France was owned by the English, and therefore... Um, I mean, who called himself the King of France and therefore was filled with English farmers and tenants who, when they lost their lands, when it was given away from under them um, by King Henry VI, uh, they came back to England and they were absolutely furious. 
and of course rioted across the country and Jack Cade's rebellion, 15,000 men in Kent, stormed into London, crossed London Bridge and raided the Tower of London, broke into the Tower of London, the one fortress that is <laughs> designed not to be broken into and got into the Royal Mint and all the rest of it and terrified everyone, including poor old King Henry, who was moved north to Kenilworth Castle to, to escape his possible murder. I mean, it was that serious. Con Eagleton, author of Wars of the Roses, Stormbird. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Con Eagleton talking about his new book, Stormbird, which is out now. The second book in the series will be published at the end of next year, so keep an eye out for it. Now, a year in Penguin wouldn't be complete without mentioning the one and only Wimpy Kid. He is a phenomenon in the kids' world, and every year we are always thrilled to bring Jeff Kinney's latest book to his fans. This year we released the eighth book in the series, Hard Luck, which went straight to number one in the bookseller charts. Here's an extract from the audiobook, read by Dan Russell. I never noticed how dirty the ground is until I got my new shoes. And not just the actual ground, but the street and the sidewalk, too. The way to school is like a minefield of mud and grease and other junk, and you practically have to be a ninja to avoid all of it. In fact, after getting only one block from my house this morning, I turned round and went back inside. I got some of those plastic grocery bags to put my feet in, and for a while, everything was good. But eventually, the bottoms of the bags got shredded, and then they didn't give me any protection at all. So I just ripped the rest of the bags off and threw them in the nearest trash can. After that, I did my best to avoid the danger areas. I stayed in the pavement until I realized I was getting pebbles in the little grooves of my shoes. And I knew those were going to take forever to dig out with a stick. So I tried to minimize the amount of rubber that touched the cement. <sighs> Eventually, I gave up, just walked on the grass. By the time I got to school, I was 20 minutes late. But it was totally worth it to show up in style. That was an extract from the Wimpy Kid Hard Luck audiobook by Jeff Kinney, read by Dan Russell. What will Greg Heffley do next in the ninth book? You'll have to wait and see. Well, in a nutshell, those were the highlights of Penguin in 2013. And to finish off, we're going to turn to one of our debut writers, Nina Stivy, whose book Love Nina is in keeping with our theme of reflection. Well, in a nutshell, those were the highlights of Penguin in 2013. And to finish off, we're going to turn to one of our debut writers, Nina Stibby, whose book Love Nina is in keeping with our theme of reflection. Nina used to be a nanny of an illustrious family in London during the 80s, and her book is a series of letters she sent home to her sister about her strange and wonderful experiences. In this interview, she starts off by telling us how she got the job as a nanny for Mary Kay Wilmers. Well, it came about because I applied for a job that I saw in the Lady magazine, and I was interviewed, and I didn't get the job to begin with. Uh, somebody else did, but that person didn't last very long, and Mary Kay rang me and said, would I like the job after all? So off I went. So this was 1982, and um, the street, Gloucester Crescent, was full of lots of creative people at the beginning of their careers. So they weren't very well known, certainly were completely unknown to me, but they were just beginning to become very famous and very successful. People like Alan Bennett and Deborah Mogak and Claire Tomlin and Michael Frayne and of course Stephen Frears and people like that. But I didn't know who they were really and I got to know them as ordinary people. I got to know them as people who weren't very good at parking their cars or that made lovely salads or you know couldn't make rice pudding and just all the ordinary day-to-day -day things. So I did get to know them very well but it took me quite some time to realise quite what they did for a living. So what part of the delight in the book is your, I suppose, naivety about uh, these people. The other is the tremendous recall you have. You, mm. you reproduce conversations between the, these very bright and, uh, and interesting children uh, and the parents and what have you with tremendous detail mm. throughout. Was that something that you had to work at or was that just because you were writing letters all the time to your sister that you just, as a matter of course, going through the day's events was always something that came out? Well, I think the, the thing I most wanted to tell Vic about was Sam and Will and Mary Kay and to try and let her know about the relationship and... It was easiest to do it in that kind of dialogue style. Um, and somebody asked me about this um, when I was doing a reading the other day, and they asked, how did you remember the dialogue? How Did you scribble it down at the time? Did you just remember it? And I think 
the easiest way to explain it is to say that when my kids say funny things now, I've got two young children, when they say things, I do remember them. And I think I remember the I remembered the bits of dialogue in that way. I was so thrilled and the kids were so clever, so quick, so witty um, that I did remember. I mean, I'm not sure I got them exactly perfect and, or, you know, verbatim, but I, I, I did remember the, the gist. I'm loath to to in any way crack or, uh, or, or or shatter the crystal mirror mm. of delight that is re- mm. reading a book. Did you polish any of the letters in the process of putting the book together or is this pretty much as they were? Well, um, people ask this question a lot. When I first realised publishers were interested and I typed the letters up to send to Mary Kay to get the nod from her, I typed them as they were. Um, and I missed out a few little bits that I, you know, were very private. But on the whole, I just bashed them out and sent them over to Mary Kay. They then got into the hands of Mary Mount at Penguin, and then it was too late for me to polish because she wouldn't have any of it. She wanted the authenticity, so I really, I, I think I would have liked to have polished them a bit um, and made myself seem a nicer person. <laughs> um, but I didn't get the chance. And in fact, I did try a couple of times, a few little tweaks, but they were weeded out. So they are pretty much as they as they were. Uh, looking back on those those days now, whether or not it's you know, uh, losing uh, Jonathan Miller's saw mm. uh, or taking the towels from Mary Kay's bathroom when you, mm. when you, when you moved house uh, <laughs> or uh, the children leaving... <laughs> Leaving each other on the street, having fallen out of wheelchairs, or the, uh, the, the 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 insults traded through photographic means on Claire Tomlin's <laughs> car. Um, do you look back on the whole thing with enormous fondness, or do yes. you cringe at some of the? No, of I look with I look back with enormous fondness. It was a great time, and I think the fact that I'm still such good friends with Sam and Will and Mary Kay um, shows that actually it, it wasn't a malicious time at all. All the sort of pranks and jokes were. I think were were just all in fun and it was it was great fun. I think I was I was did go a little bit far for for a nanny, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think many nannies would sort of drop a, a, a nine year old child into a skip. I still think that the, you. I think, I think you're unfair on yourself with that one. I think many parents would be happy to drop. <laughs> well, I think you're allowed to as a parent. I don't know if you're allowed to as a nanny. And in fact, I was interviewed um, on Radio Four not long ago, and uh, somebody there said to me they'd have sacked me on day three. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I was the right nanny for them, however mean and, and uh, pranking I was. And um, and it worked. And, we you know, we're still friends today, all of us, <laughs> unbelievably. Nina Stibby talking about her book, Love Nina, which is out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of 2013. Don't forget you can listen to all our previous episodes on our blog, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and other audiobook extracts and interviews on our SoundCloud channel, www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin hyphen books. Thank you, you lovely listeners, for all your support over the past year. We hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.